0: Medical Rewrites, Medical Rewrites, Medical. Medical Rewrites, Medical Rewrites. Hello and welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I'm Megan Jeffries. Our medical rewrite today is for 28 days, not the post-apocalyptic horror film about the rage virus, the Good One with Sandra Bullock. The deep dive will be about medical management of alcohol use disorder. The podcast is going to contain spoilers, for sure, and a description of alcohol use disorder. If you find either of these distressing, spoilers or alcohol use. This could be an episode to skip. 28 Days came out in 2000. The movie budget was $43 million and it grossed $62 million at the box office. The review stats for 28 Days are so disappointing compared to how much I particularly love this movie. IMDb gives it a 6.1 out of 10, Rotten Tomatoes critics give it a 33%, and the audience gives it a 50% approval rating. Largely, the plot is criticized for being too predictable, which I am perfectly fine with (laughs) because it's a beautiful little story about the struggles of alcohol use, and it has a happy ending, which is awesome. To get us in the headspace of the scenes we're going to rewrite today, we got to introduce the plot and what's going on. The story of 20 Days is about Gwen, who's played by Sandra Bullock. She is an addict with an addiction to or disordered use of opiates and alcohol. After stealing and crashing the limo from her sister's wedding, she attends a court-ordered rehabilitation center. Gwen is initially super reluctant to engage in group therapy or large group education sessions. On family day, she asks her boyfriend Jasper, who's played by Dominic West, to bring her hydrocodone, a little Vicodin, when he comes for the visiting day. He obliges and they sneak off grounds to drink alcohol. Gwen then shows back up to rehab, appears drunk at the front desk. The next day, her counselor, (laughs) his name is Cornell, is played by Steve Buscemi, which is Not what you would predict as the go-to actor of choice for a counselor, but he's wonderful, plays a great role. Anyways, Cornell confronts her and tells her she's been kicked out and she's going to spend the rest of her 28-day sentence in jail. Gwen continues to deny that she has a problem during this come-to-Jesus talk with drugs or alcohol and proves this to herself as she throws the hydrocodone that Jasper snuck her in for family day out her third-floor bedroom window. Later on that evening, Gwen starts demonstrating some withdrawal symptoms. She starts thinking about the hydrocodone she chucked out the window earlier and how it would take the edge off of her anxiety and agitation that she's having. She plans to climb out the window of her third floor room, grab onto a tree branch, and shimmy herself down to retrieve the hydrocodone because she can't walk past the front desk anymore because she's drunk and she can't afford to get caught, so this is her solution to this problem. She is, of course, not successful shimmying down this tree. She falls while holding a branch, sprains her ankle. Over the next 12 hours, she recognizes that she may indeed not have full control of her life choices, and she seeks out Cornell to explain her new insights. This scene is not going to be rewritten, but it's a beautiful scene.
1: You know your carpet is filthy. And I, I only bring that up because, uh, you know, carpet grit's responsible for a lot of major health problems. And, you know, it's the last thing that you need around here is major health. Uh, hey. Um, listen, about the, um, about that uh, jail thing, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't go. Um, uh, well, not because uh, I don't want to go, but um, it, uh... Oh, God, my hands, you know, I so just keep doing that. That's not normal. I just, there's something wrong with my hands. Um, well, with me. Because uh, what kind of person just jumps out of a, what kind of person jumps out of a window, you know, because she can't sit still, you know, and uh, be alone, uh, you know, in a room without, you know, a person should be able to just be alone, right? You know, human beings should be able to just breathe. <laughs> I can't breathe and I feel that I think I know I think I know that if if I go to jail like this you know I'll die and I don't want to die.
0: Now we could do a deep dive into the health risks of carpet that Gwen points out while she's talking to Cornell But the more pertinent scene is still to come. So after Gwen invests herself into all that rehab has to offer, she participates in her small group session. She attends a lecture about liver disease. She looks at pictures of cirrhotic livers. She participates in equine therapy where she's unsuccessful in getting the horse to obey her command to pick up its hoof. And through all of this, she's engaged, but clearly does not think this is wildly successful in she just gets overwhelmed with the process, and she ends up back in Cornell's office. This is the scene we're going to focus on today.
1: Just give me a pill. Give me a shot. Give me a, I don't know, give me a lobotomy. Give right, because instant gratification has worked so well for you in the past. Just take it easy and keep it simple. I am so tired by the way you people talk, you know? I mean, one day at a time. What is that? I mean, like, two, three days at a time is an option? I don't need the romper room bullshit. I just need... What are you doing? Therapeutic tool. You leave me no choice.
0: Cornell's response when Gwen asks for a pill, a shot, or a lobotomy is to give her a sign that she has to wear around her neck that states, confront me if I don't ask for help. The efficacy of this type of intervention? No idea. But Cornell could have instead told her about the pills and shots that we have for the treatment of alcohol dependence. Enter deep dive number one, pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorder. The oldest option that we have is disulfiram. It was approved by the FDA in 1948. To understand how disulfiram works, it helps to understand how alcohol is metabolized. It starts in the liver where ethanol is metabolized to acetaldehyde. This is done by ethanol dehydrogenase. Acetaldehyde is then metabolized further to acetate. This is done by aldehyde dehydrogenase. This is where disulfiram enters the chat because it's an irreversible inhibitor of aldehyde dehydrogenase. So by blocking the conversion of acetaldehyde to acetate, you get a buildup of acetaldehyde in your system. It's hypothesized that it's the high blood concentrations of the acetaldehyde. That's the cause of flushing syndrome, which is now called disulfiram reaction. It's normally characterized by flushing, nausea, thirst, palpitations, chest pain, vertigo, hypotension, the list goes on. The onset is 10 to 20 minutes after you start drinking. The severity and duration of symptoms is thought to be linear related to the amount of alcohol and thus the accumulation of acetaldehyde. Disulfiram as a treatment option for alcohol dependence never really took off for a multitude of reasons. Number one, it's hepatotoxic itself, not the reversible kind of hepatotoxicity that we see with a lot of meds, where you see an elevation in AST and ALT that goes away once you remove the drug. We're talking transplant and death level hepatotoxicity. Number two, it needs to be avoided in patients with cardiovascular disease because of the cardiovascular consequences of a disulfiram reaction psychocardia, hypotension, et cetera. Number three, it's been shown to unmask or expose hidden psychosis. Not awesome in people that are already struggling with behavior choices. And number four, patient compliance has never found to be over 50%, which I would argue is much higher than I suspect outside of a research study because we're literally asking patients to wake up and take a pill that if they drink alcohol with it will make them feel absolutely terrible. Due to the laundry list of these disadvantages, there's really no need for Cornell to inform Gwen about this disulfiram, but I would like to give a shout out to the VA who were top utilizers of disulfiram and researchers in the 1980s and the 1990s. They've conducted several clinical trials about the efficacy, ways to increase compliance, ways to engage partners in compliance. They really tried their best to utilize what was available to help veterans abstain from alcohol. Next available option is naltrexone, which was approved in either 1984 or 1994, two references, neither I could verify, as a pill, and there also is a long-acting injectable that was approved in 2006. This is the only medication that's available on cost less drugs, and it's only 20 bucks a month. Naltrexone and naloxone are both opiate antagonists that are used commonly, and I think that they're sort of hard to remember which one is which. The trick for me is that naltrexone, with a T, is used for treatment of addiction and naloxone with an OX is used for oxy reversal. There's a little clinical pearl for the day. Not really a clinical pearl, it's a memory trick. The mechanism of how naltrexone works for alcohol use disorder is arguably not well understood. It's thought that some of the pleasure derived from drinking alcohol is mediated through opiate receptors, and if you block opiate receptors with naltrexone, you block the pleasure associated with drinking, which over time decreases the desire and the craving to drink. We are all really guessing here. The third treatment option is called acamprosate. It's another medication we don't know a ton about pharmacologically. Some smart people think it's because acamprosate is both a GABA agonist and an NMDA antagonist. We know that alcohol is a GABA agonist, so the GABA activity from alcohol would be blunted or blocked. And you wouldn't maybe feel some cravings for alcohol or withdrawal symptoms because you're getting GABA agonism from a campersate that you would be missing from alcohol. The role of the NMDA is more hypothetical. By blocking NMDA, you will block the release of glutamate, which is the excitatory neurotransmitter that is opposite of GABA. So GABA and glutamate typically balance out in your brain, theory-wise, and it's the relationship between relaxation and excitation. In terms of access, acamprosate is not as accessible as naltrexone. The cash price per month is anywhere between $200 and $300, according to pharmacy websites. There's a relatively famous study published in 2006 called the Combined Study that compared naltrexone and acamprosate, sort of. There were actually nine different treatment groups that were compared over a 16-week duration, the questions that the authors were trying to ask were, what type of behavioral intervention is best and which medication, naltrexone or acamprosate, is best? And they asked that either you could have each type of medication with each type of behavioral intervention or the combination of both naltrexone and acamprosate. The study included folks that were absent from alcohol for at least four days. The breakdown was 955 men and 428 women. That ratio of at least twice as many men to women will continue through all alcohol use studies. Each group ended up with about 150 people in it. Regardless of group, everyone in the study did remarkably good at avoiding drinking. The worst performing group were those that did not receive any treatment medication, so no naltrexone or campersate, and they only got cognitive behavior interventions. That group was abstinent for 66% of the days while they were on therapy over those 16 weeks, which is awesome. There was no baseline survey or data that said how many days they were sober before the study, but nonetheless, that sounds like a pretty good target. Anyone that got naltrexone with or without medication management sessions by a non-addiction clinician, those are physicians, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, they achieved 80% of days abstaining from alcohol, which again, beautiful. So a significant increase from the group that just got a cognitive behavior intervention. Patients that got naltrexone also had the lowest percent that returned to heavy drinking. The cognitive behavior interventions by behavior health specialists did not improve abstaining from alcohol. This meant that the everyday clinician can provide naltrexone, along with some medication management topics or strategies that about compliance, etc. cetera, to naltrexone to patients with alcohol use disorder, which is super exciting, except no one got the memo. This study was published in 2006, and it would be at least 10 years before Naltrexin was talked about at least in the inpatient setting. And it wasn't until, I would say, five years ago that this became something that was done at discharge for patients that or, or during their inpatient stay. This study and this topic needs a PR agent. It is, I don't know, it just, it wasn't sexy enough. I'm not sure. But there needed to be a little bit of a PR program with this. The CDC maybe dropped the ball with this in terms of making it a priority in terms of something they did for education. Arguably, the one lasting memory that came from the study is the message that wasn't wildly helpful, which is that naltrexone should be avoided in patients with elevated liver enzymes or hepatic dysfunction, which is based on the fact that nine patients in the study ended up having hepatotoxicity. Which could not be necessarily correlated with naltrexone, but in fact could be correlated with drinking. But nonetheless, warnings came out about using naltrexone in patients with established or baseline liver dysfunction. And that was the thing that stuck. We're not going to dissect use of naltrexone with liver dysfunction on this particular rewrite because Gwen, as far as we know, it doesn't have liver dysfunction. It's not that we know she doesn't, but that wasn't part of the script. So we're going to save that for another movie. Since Combine, again published in 2006, there's been multiple other studies assessing the efficacy of naltrexone. Meta-analysis is the short way to discover what they found. There's one from 2014, which isn't totally hot off the press, but it assessed data from 122 RCTs. The results showed that both naltrexone and acamprosate reduced alcohol consumption, and the number needed to treat for either one of them was 12 so you need to treat 12 patients for one patient to prevent return to any drinking, which is pretty impressive in terms of a complete abstinence from alcohol. Similar data is seen with long-acting injection formulation, which was created to increase compliance. Compared to placebo, naltrexone injection decreases days of drinking per month by two days. So if you were drinking on average 15 days after naltrexone, you would be drinking on average 13 days. It also decreased heavy drinking days by 1.2 days per month. I get that this sounds like a small reduction in drinking and maybe uninspiring efficacy data, but keep in mind that we put the whole world, or well, maybe not the whole world, we put the whole U.S. on statins because they decrease the risk of heart attacks by a couple of percentage points. So we can be a little generous in our utilization of alcohol use meds. Before Cornell tells Gwen to start on naltrexone, there's a couple more variables that we need to consider. This is assuming that naltrexone is arguably first line, which it is in most practice settings. One, Gwen has an opiate disorder, or she's an opiate user anyways. She climbed out of the window onto a tree in an attempt to retrieve some hydrocodone that she had chucked out there just earlier that day. Naltrexone will cause acute opiate withdrawal in patients with physical dependence on opiates. The general rule of thumb is to start naltrexone after patients have been off opiates for at least seven days. A more accurate approach, or the more scientific approach to this, would be to calculate out five half-lives. The half-life of hydrocodone can be a little tricky because hydrocodone is a prodrug that's metabolized by CYP2D6 into hydromorphone, which is the active opiate form there. Nearly 10% of people with European ancestry being are poor metabolizers, which is the literal official term of people that just have low enzyme production of CYP2D6. What this means in terms of kinetics of hydromorphone is that the onset of action will be slower and that there will be less pain control because there's a delay in the formation of hydromorphone from hydrocodone. This also increases the half-life of opiates that require 2CP2D6 for activation. Those are codeine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and tramadol. Normal half-life of hydrocodone is three hours. That means in five half-lives or 15 hours, 96.8% of the hydrocodone would be excreted, which means you could use naltrexone way sooner than seven days based on this half-life. The longer detoxification period, the lower the chance of inducing withdrawal symptoms, which may leave a bad taste in a patient's mouth and decrease adherence and willingness to start taking naltrexone consistently. So if there's no hustle, there's no rush, there's not like a discharge date you need to manage, you can wait to start people on naltrexone to decrease the chance that they could have a bad first experience and therefore be unwilling to start therapy at all especially since Gwen isn't going anywhere for a couple of weeks. Based on the timeline, we're assuming she's got two to three weeks of rehab left. There's really no rush in starting her on naltrexone for a couple of days to ensure that she doesn't have any experience with an opiate withdrawal symptoms. The next variable to consider is the fact that Gwen is a woman, and there are differences in efficacy of naltrexone based on sex differences. A review of RCTs, found that seven studies had evaluated the efficacy of naltrexone in women compared to men. Two studies examined the quantity of drinks per day, and they observed trends towards reduction in drinking quantity. Four studies examined the frequency of drinking and had mixed results. One study showed a trend that favored naltrexone. Two showed a trend that actually favored placebo, and one showed no difference. Two of the three studies examining time to relapse showed a modest benefit with naltrexone versus placebo. This is not wildly inspiring data for naltrexone amongst women. The reason why naltrexone may be or is less effective in women than men is unknown. There's quite a few hypotheses that are sort of floating around or being studied. It is known that there are differences between females and males in terms of opiate use and dependence. So this potentially could be an opiate receptor or opiate use difference between the two and an opiate antagonist would behave differently. For instance, women escalate to a higher dose of opiates faster than men, women report more cravings than men, and they also report more withdrawal symptoms than men. So something is happening maybe at the opiate receptor level that may affect how naltrexone works or how the mu receptors are interacting with alcohol and therefore why nontrexone may be less effective in women. Another variable related to alcohol use in women is progesterone and estrogen, as they appear to influence alcohol consumption. Insert a quick review of female hormones during menstruation. So we've got progesterone, which stimulates GABA production, which makes us feel nice, relaxed, and calm, right? GABA agonist. When progesterone is low, GABA production drops, And mood can change that results in sort of anxiety and maybe sadness. Estrogen is also associated with good mood and energy. And the levels of progesterone and estrogen fluctuate throughout menstrual cycle, right? So progesterone is low at the onset of menses and throughout the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. Two weeks later, after ovulation, progesterone rises to its peak, feeling great by those eggs drop, by mid luteal phase and gradually declines before the next menses. Conversely, estradiol is lowest during menses and then rises through the follicular phase, peaks at ovulation, feeling great again, and then reaches a secondary peak during the luteal phase again before declining. Alcohol consumption, based on this varying concentrations of estrogen and progesterone, also varies. So alcohol consumption is associated with low progesterone, which makes sense since GABA levels are low during that time. Maybe we're trying to replace the GABA in our life with the low progesterone with some booze. And high estrogens also associated with an increased likelihood of drinking and binge drinking on weekend days. That hypothesis is less clear as to what's driving that. There's a load of additional animal research about the effects of estrogen, progesterone, and androgen and testosterone, how they affect behavior before and after the use of opiate agonists and antagonists, and I am currently unwilling to invest any more time down this particular rabbit hole, but I have left you a very long, very detailed, very thorough review article in the show notes, and you can read this to the gills with data about hormones and addiction and alcohol and opiates. In summary, the data for naltrexone appears to be less efficacious in women than in men, and those differences... (laughs) may or may not be related to hormones and or opiate receptors. It's very much in the animal study stage. Conversely, a meta-analysis that examined 1,300 women and 4,800 men showed that there were no differences in safety or efficacy between men and women that were taking a camprosate. There are relatively few studies that explore the differences in glutamate between females and males. There are some... The prefrontal cortex glutamate levels are significantly higher in men than women, and the glutamate levels are significantly higher in the stratum and cerebellum in women than men. Blood glutamate levels are significantly higher in men than women, but vary across the menstrual cycle. So there are differences, but the differences are apparently small in terms of measuring. Again, measuring brain concentrations in humans is impossible, at least pre-death. So there's sort of these surrogate markers that we're looking at there in tagged studies. In general, serum glutamate concentrations are inversely related to estrogen and progesterone concentration. So during menstruation, while progesterone and therefore GABA is low, glutamate will be high, which I guess just makes us obsessively think about how little GABA we're making. It's not a great combo in the grand scheme of things to have low GABA and high glutamate throughout the month cycle. Becto-yocamprosate may be equally efficacious in men and women. One, we think brain concentrations of glutamate appear to be similar between men and women. I can't find any compelling data comparing the concentrations of GABA or NMDA receptors. Again, that's where glutamate works, we think. Between male or females, in rats or in humans. There are lots of little studies, but there's nothing that I find wildly compelling, a data that indicates either one in either direction. To the rewrite. Picture this. So we're back at the scene. Gwen's coming into Cornell's office. She's asking for a pill or a shot or lobotomy. Instead of a Cornell responding with, quote, because instant gratification has worked so well for you in the past, end quote, he would say with the same sort of snide or condescending voice, he could say, Of course there's pills and shots. This is America. We have pills and shots for everything. Most of these pills and shots are only marginally effective. Most have side effects that are then managed with other medications, but this is the cost of keeping the medical industrial complex running. Your options are really naltrexone and a campersade. Naltrexone's less effective for women, but a campersade is more expensive. You got good insurance? Gwen would then respond with How is this pep talk supposed to be helpful? I'm so sick of the way you people talk. I don't need the bullshit. I just need and we're right back into the scene where Cornell interrupts her with her therapeutic sign that now says, tell me about your experience with naltrexone or campersate. And that's the rewrite for 28 days. Check out the show notes for references used for this episode. If you know of a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, visit the website and show notes and complete the form. This has been a podcast presented by me, Megan Jeffries, production and editing by Ann Conley. She is the Sherpa of this entire enterprise. Music is by Brandon Meager. Tell a friend or your drunk uncle about medical rewrites. This could be your not-so-subtle way of educating them about medications for alcohol use disorder. Very timely topic before we all get together for the holidays.